19 through 27. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The Gospel of our Lord. Will you pray with me, please? Father, we want to be resuscitated and revived that we might be able to call on your name, but also that we might become cheerfully responsive to you. There's a lot in us that gets afraid when we hear things like, don't just hear the word, don't merely let it tickle your ears, but enact it. We wonder what it's going to cost us. We get suspicious of your intentions for us. And we're asking today that you might reassure us that what you want for us is so awfully good. You know that in our midst there are people who are aching from loss, from ruptured relationships, from grief, from joblessness, from just the normal gray drizzle of depression and the, the onerousness of daily living. Would you bring an injection of hope and joy as we trust in you, and give us something useful so that our religion is not worthless. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Now I invite you to come. Amen. A handsome 28-year-old Jack, which is his actual name, had made his way into church that Sunday morning as a kind of recompense for his Saturday night, figuring out some way to pay back what he had incurred in liabilities and charges from Saturday night's activities, and he sat there half, half alert to the droning on of the sermon, but keenly alert to this head of hair that was up a few rows in front of him. This dazzling head of hair that got his mind wondering 
if this woman might be someone worth spending time with. And he knew, not to get his hopes up, but he waited till the opportunity came to be able to see her. And when he saw her, he realized that he had not misgaged. So he began to reconfigure his days and his whereabouts and his actions that he might get up close to her. And eventually he's able to make her acquaintance and she introduces herself as Ruth, Ruth Lightwood. And Wendell Berry writes in this memory of old Jack, after he met Ruth Lightwood, Jack, this could be said about him. The name changed him. He was now a man who knew the name of what he wanted. Hearing her name, this woman who had been meddling with his soul and had been tampering with his imagination, had been fiddling with his productivity without even knowing it, harnessing a power that was more fierce than she even knew herself. When he heard her name, he now became a man who knew the name of what it was that he wanted. In a passage like the passage today, a passage that can motivate us and perhaps frighten us, because in this room are people who have tried to hear the word of God and put it into practice and know themselves to be failures. I think it's important to think of James, the brother of our Lord, who is writing this book in order to activate a faith that is not mere profession but becomes practice, that isn't ethereal but becomes enacted, that he is helping us name what it is we actually want. And there's a power in that. Years ago, the Bodines, which were an important band in the 90s, and then not so much. They had the theme song of the show, Party of Five, which is a, a lovely, angsty, depressive little show that I watch with regularity. And at the beginning of that show, they had their song about what everybody wants. Everybody wants to live like they want to live. And everybody wants to love like they want to love. And everybody wants to be closer to free. Everybody wants to be closer to free. Everybody, they insist, wants the capacity to act unencumbered. Freedom is is a deep longing of the soul. And it's interesting that James, in these words where he's telling us to not merely listen to the word of God, but to do what it says, because if we merely listen, we're deceiving ourselves, that he's actually helping us name what we want. You want freedom. And he's telling you how to get it. You want to be free to live the way you were created to live. You want to be free to enact what's... what's, rightly inside of you as someone who has been born of God by the first fruits, as a kind of first fruits of all he has created 
by his word of truth. The same word that spoke into being the, the refreshing waters of the lake where you frolic with your family. That word that, that calls you alive is the same word that, that put the soft in your baby's skin. And that word has made you alive. And James is urging us, as people who've been made alive by that word, to keep letting that word have its way with us. And he's helping us to name what it is that we really want. My dear brothers, he says, everyone take note of this. Everyone should be slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to get angry, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, rid yourselves, he says, of moral filth, because the Bible still thinks those things happen and exist, and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word that is planted in you, which can save you, he says. Don't merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says, Because he who listens to the word and does not do what it says is like a dude who looked at his face and saw that he had banana on there and then he went away and he just kept living with a big piece of banana on his face. Have you seen Airplane? You know this reference? But the one who looks into the perfect law that gives freedom, not forgetting what he's heard, and continues to do so, this one will be blessed in what he does. And if anyone thinks he's religious but doesn't keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this. To look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James, without you knowing it, is telling you what you want. He's giving you the name of what you want. He's telling you that implicit in all of these commands to do what God has said, to listen to what God has spoken, to let the word of God like a seed in the soil of your life be be nourished there, be received there, to be able to blossom from there, And all of it, he's telling you about a kind of life that you want down deep. And it's the kind of life that God wants for you. You know, it's interesting. He starts, and he gives you three ways to be free. Because that's what everybody wants, to be free. And he tells us by looking like you look intently into a mirror, studying your face. If you look intently into God's words, That give freedom, he says. That's what you want. You want some kind of freedom. But now, here's the issue. There are faux freedoms. There's a freedom that is offered to us that says this. If you want to be free, if you want to be a free person, then you need to follow your passions. Which is a good enough piece of advice. There are certainly true parts of that. Created in the image of God, there are desires in us that are good and worthwhile and indicative and, and, and leading. They're meant to move us. 
But taken without any other thing, to merely say, follow your passions, is a promise of freedom that will keep you ensnared. James says, part of true religion is keeping yourself from being polluted by the world. One of the pollutions that happens to us in our pursuit of freedom is just the following of our passions. Without asking the question, is our passion what God wants it to be? Is this passion to be fanned into flame, or is it to be smothered and destroyed? Because not all passions are created equal. So don't tell your kids, and don't listen if someone tells you merely to follow your passion when you're trying to figure out a career, or you're trying to figure out how to spend your time. You might ask a question like this, like, what if your passion is, say, stupid? You know, there are stupid passions that people have. There are no stupid people, just stupid passions. No, they're both. But it's worth asking, is this a wise passion? As I pursue this, is it going to benefit anybody besides me? You might be passionate about golf and decide to play it all the time, and your passion becomes a poison for the ecosystem of your life. You might be passionate about beer. And that might work out really well for you, but terribly for everybody else around you. You might be passionate about winning, about getting money. And if that's the only thing you're passionate about, it might go very horribly for all the people around you and even eventually for you. You might, in the end, become enslaved by your liberties. I heard someone mention that Nope. <laughs> what a tease. I won't say someone. I got to pass on that. I say unscripted things, and then I just caught myself thinking, I'm not going to say this unscripted thing. And I'm sorry if that kills you with curiosity. You will not die. <laughs> but there is this clamor to obey your passions, to give vent to your cravings and your desires. Now, if you merely do that, here's what's going to happen. You're going to act in anger a lot. And James says you should be slow to speak and slow to get angry, but quick to listen because your anger doesn't bring about the righteous life that God desires. But anger is generally related to you giving full vent to something you desire. You want to be rightly recognized. You want to be rightly taken into account. You want to be understood. And so when you're having a conversation with somebody, what's hard about listening to them is that you're just waiting for your turn to speak. It's very hard to be slow to listen because you have to suspend your own desires for a moment. You have to suspend your own desire to clarify no, 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 you don't understand, but you have to suspend your own desire for self-promotion. You don't get it. You're all wrong. You have to suspend your desire to be first and foremost in the mind of the speaker. 
That's what humbly accepting the word of God is. You're, you're suspending yourself for a moment to say, there might be a voice that's more important than my own. That has things to tell me that will lead me out of my own self-deception. That will help me not be snookered anymore because I never really know when I'm being self-deceived. That's the nature of it. If we look carefully, just over the last week of your life, the last two weeks of your life, you'll realize that James is on to something here when he tells you that by looking at the word of God that you plan to enact, that it will give you freedom, and that God's that, that giving vent to your anger, that following your desires there is actually not bringing about the righteous life that God desires. Implicit this is that God has a life for you that he desires. And whatever he wants for you is the best thing to want. And if you look at your life, there's so much about it that isn't right. As for that, so much about it that's just not right. And what do you think the remedies for those things are? If you feel left out, the remedy, of course, is that people would include you more. Not that you'd get okay with being left out. If you have someone making false accusations against you, the remedy to that is to correct them and to shame them publicly, or at least to get them to stop and to clarify things, not to entrust your reputation to God and to become the kind of person who could take someone making false accusations against you and still be able to live. If you're worried about your finances... Contentment could not be any part of the issue. It has to be, i got to get more money. Almost all of the situations that we bump up against, all the relational difficulties, so many of them, it never occurred to us, is our ailment is, is that we're not righteous enough. We haven't been weaned off ourselves enough. Our desire is still too loud in our heads. Our selves are still too prominent in the f- equation. That's why it's so hard to hear good news about somebody else that diminishes you. To hear a compliment of someone else that feels like it belittles you. The issue isn't to therefore level the person who's being complimented. It's to become a different kind of person who can hear someone complimented and be happy for them. Most of our internal agitations are a lack of righteousness. Most of our Difficulties with dealing with what's happening to us are deficits of character. They would matter far less to us. They would be, they would be far less likely to knock us off our stability if we had become different kinds of people. But that never occurs to us. We always look outward and say, they need to stop it. I need to get more. They need to honor me more. They need to pay attention to me more. The world needs to look at me more. Me more. That's a hashtag. We're going to make it up. Hashtag me more. A commentary on modern life in America. And James is saying that all of these pursuits, all of these promises of freedom, they're all about obeying yourself. But the word that gives you life 
is about another word that comes in and starts to meddle with you. And that's why he says, don't just listen to it. If you just listen to it, you'll, you'll deceive yourself. Do it. Put it into practice. Then you'll know freedom. Well, that sounds crazy to us. It sounds stifling to us because we're not the kinds of people yet who have learned what it is. Although, in areas where you have done some obedience in your life, where you have bowed your knee and submitted your heart and humbled yourself before God and done something that He wanted that wasn't necessarily what you first thought of, you've seen, you've come to see perhaps there's some freedom there. James knows it's awfully hard to be happy if all your cravings are doing all the shot calling. You're tossed around. You're an unstable person. Earlier he calls it a double-minded man. A double-minded woman. The guys in the Bible, the folks in the Bible are always clamoring, make me to have an undivided heart. Where I want what you want. Because my wants deceive me. They lead me too easily astray. And so James says, do what God's word says. And then he gives us three areas where this freedom might be enacted. Three different aspects of listening to God's word. It's not the only three aspects. If you've ever read the Bible, you realize it says a lot of things. But here are three that he thinks are important, and he actually revisits these in several different ways. The first one is simply controlling your mouth. It has to do with speech. That God's word has something to do with your words. In later places, he'll say that the tongue is like a little spark that can start a raging forest fire that ruins vast acreage of the West. The tongue is this tiny little instrument that does these fierce and awful things to people. And so he says, if you have a religion that doesn't have anything to do with how you speak of others and to others, it's worthless. Religion has something to do with the way we talk. The religion that God cares about. There was a time in human history, and some of you lived it, where something could be unpleasant to you, something could be angering to you, and this you're not going to believe this. You would have to hear about it, and then you would have to feel angry about it, and that would be it. You wouldn't be able to tell anybody, except maybe the close people next to you, or you could have yelled at the TV, Tom Brokaw could have told you something, or Walter Cronkite could have told you something on the, on the evening news, and you could have gone, or the Braves could have lost again, and you could have yelled at the TV. But you would have had no way to mass complain. There would have been no opportunity, no forum. But fortunately, by the kindnesses of the Internet gods, You now have a constant megaphone where every displeasure that you have, every thing that you want to scold somebody about, everything that you have recognized as wrong as your station as a prophet in the world, you may speak it. 
and we're better for it. Read Twitter a while. Oh, I don't even know what Facebook says, but I, I get the impression it's even worse. But now James would say this. How about try this for it on for size? You know those times when you, when you say, I, I, I know I shouldn't say this, but I just got to say this. And then you say it to destroy whoever you're saying it to? James would say, how about not saying it? It's a magical spiritual prescription. There are things that occur to you. You can have something occur to you and not say it out loud. It has happened in human history. It is possible. And it is actually a thing. You know how they teach you when you're a child that if, you, if you're in a, a fire, that fires need oxygen to keep going. And if you take out their oxygen source, that they'll be smothered. A lot of your negative, gross, angry, hurt, jealous, envious, judgy thoughts. Like whatever you're thinking about the person sitting next to you or right behind you right now. Just kidding. If you just don't say it, a lot of the oxygen will get smothered out of it. Well, that goes very much counter to our our current way of thinking. If you're angry, you should express your anger. Because if you sit on your anger, well, then it'll go away. Sometimes it really will. But you know what happens? This happens to me. The more I give vent to my anger, you know what? I don't get less angry. It's delicious. You get more angry. Giving in to everything you want to say doesn't make you better or doesn't help anybody around you. And James has said there are certain ways you've got to control your tongue because you're under the sway of a new master. So you can't curse the image of God that's in front of you. You can't belittle I've known my share of doing, unfortunately, to the injury of those around me. Your gossip, your complaining. So many of these things, if they don't see the light of day, they, they might just die out. But James says the control of the tongue is one of the ways that we find ourselves free. If you learn that you could actually feel something and not say it, that you could have an opinion about something and not share it, you would actually be experiencing a great deal of freedom. That's one way he says that you'll find freedom is, and that's what you really want, is by controlling your tongue. So you don't give vent to anger, so you're slow to speak and quick to listen, and you keep a tight rein on your tongue. The other way he says is this pure and faultless religion that God accepts that way is the care for widows and orphans in their distress. Marshall mentioned earlier Ted's comments about his children not liking this present iteration of the church. And I don't know what that says about his church or about the children. I don't know that. But I do know this, that one of the most difficult things for people outside the church, and maybe even inside, is if we keep hearing that we care about certain things and they never seem to make it onto the docket of our lives. A friend recently said, 
The first question that many of my unbelieving friends in this Christian South ask me when I come to them, when I'm talking to them about the faith, is, who did you vote for? Did you vote for Donald Trump? That's the first question they want to know. We won't talk about religion until you tell me if you voted for Donald Trump. Why do they say that? Because in the modern, the mind outside the church, and I wish inside the church, it's inconceivable that Christians could be advocating for a man like this. I'm not, that's what people think. And so they think, how could you be a real Christian? People care that our profession becomes activated, that it becomes practiced. It matters. And one of the main things that we're about is people who follow a Savior who had no place to put his head, who looked on the crowds helpless and harassed and had compassion on them like a sheep, like like sheep without a shepherd is that we're people who care about those that nobody else cares about. We're people who are willing to spend ourselves on those that no one else will bother over. Throughout the Old Testament, those primary people, they became a kind of type, are orphans and widows. Because these were the people that they had no support structure. They had no safety net. They had no connections. They had no resources. They had nobody looking out for them. They weren't tethered to any kind of community that was going to make sure they didn't wither up and have to face this cruel world without a haven. And so routinely, God becomes known as the father to the fatherless, the defender of widows. And he says things to his people like, hey, you take care not to be neglectful of the needs of these widows because you know what they might do? They might call out to me and say, you treated me bad. And then I'm going to get you. That's Hebrew. But that's the idea. Don't be harsh with the poor. Don't be mean to the immigrant. Don't be callous to people who are in hard situations, who've got nothing. Because they might cry out against you. And they've got my ear. And James is saying if we're people who have come under the sway of Jesus and we're no longer under the sway of our own desires, then suddenly we're going to find ourselves moving toward the people that nobody else would move toward. Putting up with troubles that other people don't want to get onto them. Coming alongside people who are grieving or hurting, who are scared, who have nobody. Actual widows, actual orphans, and sometimes just people who are lonely, who are single, who are divorced, who are infirmed and of course when he urges us to do this he says it to brothers and sisters it's important most all the commands in the bible they're the commands for the church it's amazing to me i was thinking last night about this and thinking over the years that we've been here i can think of at least about 15 adoptions that have happened within our congregation within families in our congregation in some capacity or another over the years grandparents or parents. And you guys have helped more broadly with orphanages around different parts of the country, helping this summer with this. This is a crucial aspect of our Christianity. And if it is not, if care for the poor, if social concern about people who are on the bottom in some way, people who are disadvantaged in some way, then we've departed from the concerns of our Savior. 
And for some of us, that will be just caring for our own families. You know, the Apostle Paul takes a line like this. If anybody has a widow in their house, a parent or a grandparent, let them put their religion into practice and care for them. Thus repaying their parents and their grandparents. He says the person who doesn't take care of his own family in that regard is worse than an unbeliever, has denied the faith. Isn't it interesting that James and and Paul would both characterize the reality of faith in caring for people who have no care? It boils down to something as simple as that. But he couples it with this thing. So you get freedom from controlling your tongue. You get freedom from actually spending yourself on behalf of those who have no care, no advocate, no connection. But you also, you get freedom from keeping yourself from being polluted by the world. And this goes back to taking God's word seriously and saying behind every command of God, Behind every insistence that he offers to us is a heart and an intention that we have a kind of life that he wants for us. When I was a teenager, when I first started getting serious about my faith, I can remember that Kathy and I, for instance, my friend and my guy friends and I, we would we would memorize scripture. And because no one told me any different, I would actually, like, read the Bible and then think, like, I need to obey this. Because I hadn't gotten sophisticated enough to know that nobody actually intended on us to do that, that these aren't real things. And I can remember that, I remember fondly this idea of thinking, hey, I have an anger problem, I need to work on that. We would talk about that. What are you working on? I need to work on the way I'm speaking. I would have these commands and I would be thinking about them and praying about them because I thought they ought to be affecting my life. I got more sophisticated than that later. I understood about grace and all that and I knew God didn't want us to do anything. But I think back to how it affected how I went to school because all of a sudden it made me think, well, I'm, oh, I ought to take care, I ought to, be aware of kids who don't seem to have any friends. You know, because everybody's not as cool as me. It's a joke. <laughs> Other people are like, you need to look after this guy who's got no friends. But it started waking me up to concerns. It started waking me up to, oh, the Bible says to be concerned about a whole lot of things that nobody in the world says matter. The Bible doesn't tell me to primarily be concerned with what I look like or with what I do for others. It doesn't primarily tell me to be concerned about getting more things but to learn to be content with what I've got. But I never know that if I never look intently at the Scriptures and say, what does it have to say about my speech or about the condition of my heart or about how I'm loved or whether I should be more focused on how I love? I never know if I'm never there. And there's nothing like an intent look at the scriptures to remind you and to show you how you're being polluted by the world because we don't know when it's happening. If you go for a run in downtown and you breathe in the smog, you don't know. 
Until later, after you've breathed in pollen and your breathing's chalky, you don't realize you've breathed in bad stuff. And the scriptures help awaken us to that. Oh, there's a way to live without worrying and being afraid all the time? It's not merely a hallmark of responsibility? Like, faith might actually help me in real-life situations where I'm afraid or where I'm angry where I'm desperate, where I don't have what I think I need, where someone thinks the wrong thing about me and it's crushing me. There's solace? There's redirection? Oh, there is freedom, in fact. Freedom from being tyrannized by your own cravings. Freedom from being tyrannized by your own misinterpretations. Freedom to find a consoling, creative, life-giving word. From the Savior who calls us alive. The name changed him. He was now a man who knew the name of what he wanted. Jesus says that he's the one who gives freedom. And that ironically or paradoxically, this freedom comes as we give up our supposed freedom and entrust it to him. To him who has taken away all our pollution. To him who, even though we've brought about anger that didn't bring about the righteous life God desires, he's taken that infraction from us. To him who, when we fail to care for those who have a claim on our care, nonetheless forgives us and empowers us to go forward again, not only pardoned, but empowered. Do you know the name of what it is you want? You want this freedom, and it's found in this Christ. And these words are an introduction to him. And ironically, in ways that we don't always think, it isn't by figuring him out that you get freedom. It's by following him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, Only those who believe can obey. And all Reformed people said, Amen. And then he aggravatingly said, But only those who obey can believe. And then we thought, Neo-Orthodox German. But he's on to something brilliant. Because the scripture says the dangerous thing for all religious people is to think if you know the truth, if you can say it, that you somehow have personal acquaintanceship with it. And the Bible would say, uh uh-uh, no. You don't know nothing until you can put it into practice. And so if you find your faith stalling right now, look and see where there may be parts of God's word that you won't do where you're stiff-arming, where you've put up a firewall, and you said, sorry, God, not interested in that. You'll probably find the culprit for your diminishing belief. It's uncanny to me how many people walk away from the faith unaware that suddenly their unbelief has arisen at just the same time as they have some deep moral problem that they don't want the Bible to speak to. We're no different. That's why we keep going back to this Jesus for mercy and we keep asking him 
command whatever you will. Only grant what you command. That'll keep us from a deceitful religion. Amen.